Welcome to the Organizing Ideas Podcast. I'm Allison. And I'm Karen, and we are two new librarians and archivists and your hosts for this podcast. Together, we're taking a closer look at the relationships between organizing information and community organizing, how libraries and archives are never neutral, and what we mean when we say that knowledge is power. We are recording on the unceded and ancestral territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh people. Our guest today is our friend Shelby Miller, a student in the MLIS program at UBC's iSchool and an employee at Vancouver Public Library. Shelby's thesis project at UBC focuses on the information-seeking habits of transgender individuals. She recently participated with Allison Hazel-Jane Plant, Leah Tottenham, and Sear in a roundtable discussion for the BCLA Connect newsletter, newsletter called Not Cis and LIS, a roundtable discussion about being trans in libraries, and we're grateful to have her here today with us to speak about her own experience working in public libraries as well as about her research. So Shelby, you've worked at VPL for eight years now. Can you tell us a bit about what you do there? Sure. So currently my position is, I always have to really try to get this acronym right, but I'm a library public service associate one, which means, <laughs> which means I, I'm like the circulation staff, generally the frontline staff that you see when you come into the library. I'll sign you up for a library card. I'll deal with your late fees all that sort of fun stuff. So it's a lot of patron interaction, a lot of one-on-one interaction, which I find can be very, very satisfying work. So you wrote the Not Cis and LIS article about what it's like to be asked by patrons about your gender identity and expression, as well as like about what kinds of support and policies VPL has in place for trans employees. Could you share a little bit about that for folks who haven't read the article? Yeah. So first off, I think people should go and seek out the article because it's not just me talking in the article and I think everyone really contributed you know their own unique perspective and their own unique voice. To sum it up really quickly being visibly trans in the library setting brings some challenges I think for the most part it's challenges that are shared with anyone who's visibly trans in a service position so there are you know fears of patrons coming to you with hostility in my position, I think there's some fears about talking to kids. I, I, I do end up talking to kids a lot to help them find books they want, or I, or I talk to them or help them out on the computer. And I've had interactions with patrons in the past who are like afraid to bring their kids into the trans-friendly washroom because they don't want their kid to be near a trans person. So those interactions get a little more fraught as I worry about potential interactions with parents. My presentation tends to be a little bit more androgynous. I find a lot of joy in androgynous presentation. So occasionally a kid will come up to me and ask me if I'm a girl or a boy, and, and that's always kind of a pleasing experience for me. I can definitely see that being stressful or, you know, unpleasant for other folks, depending on their own their own predilections. I agree that I, I find, too, like working at the children's desk versus working at the adult desk, because the libraries I've worked at all have, like, separate desks, brings on very different kinds of questions. Like, kids are upfront about their confusion often, and... Yeah, but that's more, kind of a... Like, in, in ways that... Yeah. yeah. and But that's kind of tough to navigate, too, yeah. because I want to... 
you know, give the child ass if I'm a boy or girl, the full answer, which is that, you know, I'm sort of a girl, but sort of neither, and it's all kind of confusing, but then I don't want... I guess mostly my fear is an adult getting mad at me for putting such ideas into a child's head, but it, but it's difficult to, you know, exist in a space where you might not fit someone else's idea of what a person is supposed to be and trying to figure out how to navigate those interactions. In terms of support offered by VPL, you know, I think we are really moving towards getting training about trans people that's coming in from the city, so hopefully that's going to get uh, integrated into our training soon. Um, and I think that's really important, just so... I, I work with a lot of different people. There's 20, 22 or 23 branches, so I'm constantly meeting new people, and they're trying to figure out how to respond to me. I'm, I'm basically desperately hoping that they don't that they don't say anything silly. So, yeah, I hope that training is going to really be beneficial for me because I'm working in a lot of different spaces with a lot of different sorts of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what that, uh, what the impact of that is like. Because you have had some optional training in the past, right, for people? I think yeah. you mentioned that before. So yeah, I did mention that in the article. But it's kind of the self-selected training that is sort of only marketed to people who might already be engaged with, with LGBT issues. So not... You know, not not kind of the broad acceptance and broad understanding that I think is really needed. So I'm I'm I was really happy to hear that this training is going to be offered, and I really hope that it brings some some good stuff for all of all VPL staff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's usually the folks who need it most who won't opt in. <laughs> when you on the article you had also recently joined a working group in your union focusing on supporting trans members Um, what are your hopes for that group so we are the trans and non-binary advisory committee I believe is our official title and I'm, I'm hoping that this provides an avenue for you know union members who have a specific issue that they want brought up um to someone who has a specific experience to you know, deal with that in an appropriate way, in a way that's kind of coming from a place, maybe with some lived experience. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to that group. I like all of the people in it. We are generally made up of trans and non-binary employees. We got a lot of support so far from our union president, who is great. Kari Scott White kind of spearheaded the group with one of the other trans employees at BPL. And I think we're a good, we're a really good network of folks. And I really am excited to kind of broaden our scope and figure out what we can what we can do in this new capacity. Mm-hmm. That is super exciting. So from what I understand, the group was created after the Feminist Current event at BPL when Megan Murphy spoke. Can you speak to the impact of that event on you as a trans person working at BPL? Yeah. News of the event came at a pretty vulnerable time for me. I ended up coming out in the workplace I think in February or March of this year, so very soon after the event and all the fallout. So it was a period where it was really difficult to navigate. There's a lot of discussion around um, amongst staff, but it was hard to really fully engage in that discussion without 
without outing myself, without, you know, drawing questions as to why this affected me so much, why, why this bothered me so much. At the same time, that discussion period was a good time to identify allies among staff, identify staff who were supportive and who I knew I could trust going forward. When I heard about the event, there was kind of a like a, a dissociation almost that help, happened within myself, kind of a splitting of my professional self, who had worked for VPL for a number of years at that point, who had a lot of faith and a lot of love for the organization, and then my personal self, who was finding myself under under attack almost, it seemed like, by that organization, and trying to reconcile those two parts of myself was very difficult, and it remains... You know, I think a healing process is undergoing between the organization and communities, but also, you know, amongst trans staff who who I think dealt with some similar feelings when this happened. So I feel like I'm getting there, which is good. Yeah, just to say a little bit about that, too, because, um, well, we were all in library school when it happened at that event at BPL, and having a lot of conversations with like other trans students and with, you know, folks who work at VPL, folks who like myself, maybe when entering the iSchool were like, oh yeah, VPL is like where I want to work. I live in Vancouver. I like the idea of working in a public library, whatever it was pretty, I had a very similar, very heartbreaking feeling of, do I still want to work at this place? I feel so betrayed. And it, uh, (laughs) it's encouraging to hear that there's like this sense of community amongst trans employees at VPL and amongst allies and that, you know, stuff is happening to be supportive for for people there because I know I and and I know others that I've spoken to have that sitting in the back of our minds. Like, should I bother applying to a job there or am I gonna, (laughs) am I gonna hate it? Not to put those words in your mouth, just that for me is something that I've definitely kept thinking a lot about. It's frustrating to see it happen again. And I think when I, I mentioned to you, Shelby, I think when I brought up TPL and you kind of said, but you weren't aware, I was like, oh, maybe maybe don't pay attention then. Maybe this is not what you need right of now. Course, as soon as you said that, I immediately looked up. <laughs> about it. I was like, oh, no, what have I done? And you mentioned, like, is it the same group of people? And I was like, yeah. And, and we had a moment of just, oh, I thought we were gonna, supposed to look like during BPL. I remember reading about how people were saying we should look to TPL as an example, and then kind of. So, do you? What do you think? You know, folks would be learning about what happened at VPL. Well, I really would have hoped that the lesson learned by UBC and SFU and TPL would be not to do this. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds so simple. I know there's just no benefit that I can see to anyone. It, it, it really does cause all this stress and damage to the community. I'm struggling to see, principles aside, how anyone can could look to this event and think, yes, this is what I want to invite into my own workplace, regardless of your position, whether, whether you are maybe sympathetic to or aligned with those groups or not. It, it just seems... I don't understand wanting to poke that bear. But that's, we're past that. These events have happened. So I, yeah, now, now a healing process really has to begin at all of these institutions. And I think VPL is going about it in 
a, a pretty good way in a way that I'm so far happy with. They recently released kind of a reaffirmation of support of transgender and gender variant people. I will go into the next strategic plan. You know, that touches on some of the steps that they're taking to hopefully prevent this from happening again. They've introduced a, a pre-screening policy now for, for room bookings that wasn't there before, where they are, you know, asking for a speaker list and, and doing a little bit more research into the people who are speaking. And I think Christina de Castell, the chief librarian of EPL, was also very, you know, open and very good at making herself available for staff comments for one-on-one. I ended up having a 70-minute sit-down with her in August that I felt like did a very good job of kind of addressing the concerns that I had. And it was very generous of her, I thought, to to afford that time to, you know, a single staff member. I know I'm, the, I'm not the only person she talked to in that capacity. Yeah, it does seem like one really big difference from having talked to some folks in Toronto with what happened at VPL is VPL's like very explicit invitation of different staff perspectives, telling staff that you can have whatever opinion about it and you're allowed to talk about it, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I, it didn't seem to me that Toronto was quite as explicit about that with people. Most of the response I saw came from their union as a group, which was also nice to see them standing up for members in that way, but yeah. Yeah. So n- none of what I'm talking about at VPL erases the damage done, but no. I, I, I'm very happy to see that moving forward, they are, you know, actively looking to repair some of the relationships they've damaged and taking some ownership for what happened. And I think that is coming out more and more recently, kind of out of a willingness to take responsibility that I think is, or that I hope at least it is helpful to maintain those relationships. Mm-hmm. One issue that came up a lot in the conversations around these events is about intellectual freedom. And I'm curious if you have thoughts on like the limits in the way that right now, you know, libraries, chief librarians, library associations have been using that concept of intellectual freedom. Do you have thoughts on how we might need to reimagine or reexamine that? Yeah. So I think when the libraries or institutions talk about intellectual freedom, they're kind of doing it from this liberal utopian perspective where there's a spectrum of ideas and some of them are benign and some of them are controversial. And then there's like this hard line where the ideas cross into hate speech. And those are the only ones that we should get rid of. Everyone else is free to, in good faith, argue openly in the marketplace of ideas, whatever they might believe. And I don't think that model is working. I think that's really a naive way of looking at things, especially with groups who are actively acting in bad faith in attempts to recruit and eventually radicalize folks. So I've heard a lot about people saying, well, we can't stop these groups because they don't meet a legal definition for hate speech. And putting aside the fact that, you know, laws move very slowly, precedents, you know, aren't It takes a while to be set. These are groups who position themselves just just on the good side of hate speech, like just on the acceptable side of hate speech, and do that very knowingly and very intentionally. They don't want to put forth their extremist views right away because that is 
going to turn off maybe people who are more in the center, who are more susceptible to being um, swayed in one direction or another. And if a precedent was set, if a case did come down really outlining that what they're doing is hate speech, it's hard not to imagine that they would just shift the rhetoric a little bit more towards what is now deemed acceptable and continue basically the same pattern. So those arguments are really frustrating for me. It's hard to really see how inviting these people into discourse is supposed to lead to, to this open and free speech. Because functionally, when you have a person who comes from a baseline level of, you know, I as a trans person am not who I say I am. I am uh, not, you know, human in some in some cases. I can't argue with that. Like, I, I can't defend myself. I can't say anything to change their mind because they are, you know, starting that conversation from such a baseline level of that I am less than them. So why, why would they listen to me in that scenario? I hear a lot of kind of slippery slope arguments that get made. That's like, well, if we censor the people who don't like trans people, maybe tomorrow we'll be censoring trans people. And that's another take that I find very difficult to wrap my head around. The, the, like the paradox of tolerance, right? Is that if you allow for open, for unlimited tolerance, then eventually that tolerance is going to subside as intolerant views take over. Um, so the only way to create a truly tolerant society is through intolerance of intolerance. And it's hard, it's hard to really say what that all looks like in terms of policy, mm-hmm. right? In terms of um, making sure bad faith actors don't get the same platform, making sure that you can suppress hateful views without suppressing, you know, quote unquote controversial views that, that maybe don't take that same target. But... I think figuring out what that looks like has to start from a baseline level of, okay, the way that we're looking at intellectual freedom right now is not working anymore. Thank you. That was a lot of really insightful things. That was really good. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, I think that the question of how to get it into policy or whatever is a big and nebulous one and as we saw with Toronto like you mentioned even when it sort of appears like something is there in policy it may or may not be implemented or enacted and so this is a conversation that I think we need to be having really openly and and challenging this just like baseline assumption of as you said like this very liberal utopian understanding of intellectual freedom that a lot of librarians and libraries put forth thank you yeah, you're all welcome. The I'm glad you put that, that, stayed, that stayed coherent throughout. Oh, it very sure coherent. did. Oh, wow. <laughs> Beyond the focus on room bookings that these events have kind of led to, what other things could libraries be doing to better support trans people and be trans inclusive? So I think at very kind of minute levels, Libraries and any any organizations really should be looking at details such as, you know, are we recording people's gender unnecessarily? Are we dividing up any other services such as washrooms in, in ways that might make, you know, some people uncomfortable? I think community consultation is very important. If you want to seriously commit to valuing transgender communities, transgender voices in your community, then that 
should take the, the form, I think, of some level of community consultation, listening to those groups and finding out what they need from you. I, I can't give a, you know, a blanket statement on what libraries or, or other organizations can do to support trans people very broadly, but I, I, I think that listening and that willingness to learn is an important piece of it wherever you are. And then, yeah, like it was mentioned with the Toronto example, just because you have a policy that in, in theory supports trans people doesn't mean that it's going to be enacted in that way. So I think it's very important for people who care about libraries and who also care about trans people and issues that face trans people to to get involved. And that can be by attending board meetings, that can be by, you know, eventually applying to become a board member. That, that That's something that's open to, I think, anyone who lives in at least Vancouver for the Vancouver Library Board and who doesn't work at the city already. So that, you know, that's a really concrete way that you can become involved and and add your voice. If you're in library school, you know, you can bring up these issues in your classes, you can do that in your projects or your presentations, really make that a focus and, and start those discussions. If you're a teacher, you can, you know, start start implementing these issues into your curriculum. Those are really concrete action ideas though I think those are really helpful like even because I think individuals like we can't really fix everything that's going on but I think we all can in our own capacity so I think that was very helpful yeah I think you know these changes have to happen at at, at a person-person level at a systemic level we need to eventually find people who are you know tolerant and willing to go to bat for not just trans people but all marginalized folks and people of all different walks of life yeah, I, there's one thread, one of the things you brought up that I did want to just touch on, because mm-hmm. earlier this week I interviewed Nico Stratus, who's one of the trans people in Toronto who did a lot of responding to the event there. And it's something that Nico brought up over and over again in our conversation is that consultation and listening to people who are directly affected by these kind of events and stuff going on, like you were saying, right? Build relationships with trans people listen to us when we tell you you're making a big mistake and throwing us under the bus and and yeah and Nico just came back to that over and over again about how people in Toronto were you like went to the board meeting and were you know made statements and signed petitions and all of this kind of stuff and the library just really didn't listen and and I think it's a huge huge failure like how often do you get you know, dozens of people showing up at a library board meeting. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think very often. <laughs> so I, yeah, I really appreciate your call for that and for people to like, get involved and take leadership in that way. Yeah. I think this change, you know, it's going to happen incrementally. It's going to happen like Karen said on a person to person level. And it's obviously it's going to take time and it's going to be daunting, but I feel kind of optimistic being in a lot of our MLIS classes Seeing, seeing groups of students really engaged about these issues and really thinking critically about these issues, it seems like hopefully we're, we're going to be a next generation of librarians who, who, who kind of take this discourse forward and move these organizations forward. Yeah, I hope so too. <laughs> I don't think it's impossible. I feel like, I don't think it's too aspirational. I feel like it's very, like you said, like people are showing up to board meetings and it's just like if we listen... Yeah, I don't think it's too long. It's not too much to ask. Yeah. Do you want to talk about your thesis? Yeah, let's talk okay. about my thesis. 
<laughs> so you kind of mentioned to us that your thesis is focusing on the information-seeking habits of transgender people. So I think information-seeking habit is sort of like a library jargon. Do you want to break down what that is? Maybe some examples of what information-seeking means? Sure. So information-seeking habits very broadly are the different methods in which people encounter or try not to encounter information. So, you know, this can take the role of really active seeking, whether it's looking for something specific, looking for information on a specific topic that you have, or um, just kind of, you know, looking about a topic more broadly. There's also opportunities for passive information seeking. So maybe you're not really looking for something, but you come across it in media. Or um, the example I like to use is if you're driving to work, and you check Google Maps beforehand and you see there's an accident and decide to take another route, then you were actively seeking information about your driving habits. If you're driving, listening to the radio, and you hear a traffic alert telling you about that upcoming accident, then you've passively found that same information. So, you know, in both cases, information about traffic in this case has been found, but um, the method in which the individual goes about finding that information can, can, can differ. Cool. How did you decide that this is what you were going to focus on? Well, it's a bit of a saga. I really started working on this last September. And in last September, there was an article published in an open access journal. I won't name the researcher, but it was kind of with very flawed methodology and obvious bias, trying to push this narrative that children were being tricked into becoming transgender, that tra being transgender was a social contagion. She, you know, used the phrase, the researcher used the phrase rapid onset gender dysphoria a lot to kind of try to delegitimize the experience of some trans people in a way that I found very, very offensive, very paternalistic, assuming that there's only one trans narrative that needs to be followed or else your, your experience as a trans person is not valid. So I really wanted to start doing research kind of to push against that, to push against what I think more generally in media is a flattening of transgender experiences. The kind of classic trans narrative that you might see where someone was like, well, I knew I was a girl since I was a child and I never liked boy things and I always liked dresses and now I'm a very feminine woman and this is who I am now. Pushing against that and, and allowing trans people to really give ownership to their own stories and to their own experiences because in my in my experience at least it was a much less linear journey it was a much and a much more interesting journey to come to an understanding a better understanding of my gender identity so i'm looking at information seeking habits that are specifically related to the formation of a transgender identity so transgender to really break down that is any gender that's different than the one that you were assigned at birth so that encompasses, you know, a wide range of different identities, not just transgender male, transgender female. Yeah, and that seemed like a very interesting area of focus to me. It's kind of this, you know, discovery period, this period of self-doubt and questioning, but also kind of maybe answering some, some questions that you had about yourself. It, it seemed like a really rich area to look at, and I'm really curious about the kinds of information that other trans people encountered or that they actively sought out and... How that was helpful or not helpful in some cases in coming to understand their gender identity. That's gonna be so interesting! 
Do you want to talk about where in your research you are right now? Because you are still writing it. Like how how has the research like the how yeah how has the research been so far? So I'm very early still in planning it. I plan to really get into it next semester. Um, I kind of have an idea of the kind of methodology I want to use. I'm skeptical generally of research that asks marginalized folks to like share really personal details about themselves and then puts that out to the world and is like, isn't that neat? So I want to. <laughs> <laughs> so instead, I'm really looking to bring it to an action research framework. So that's kind of combining research with action or with advocacy. In this case, you know, taking these trans experiences that I hope to get from some participants and, and together coming up with like imagining resources that might be helpful, imagining what the ideal trans resource looks like, things that could be used in, for example, the SOGI 123, the Sexual Orientations and Gender Identity Curriculum that's being introduced in British Columbia and Alberta. Can we make sure that that's better tailored to, to help those kids who are in the questioning phase? So I hope an action research framework can kind of help to kind of change and upset those power dynamics that I think are inherent in a lot of research and a lot of research uh, involving marginalized folks to make participants a more active part of the research and not just, you know, the subjects being observed. I hope that moving this kind of research to insider research, meaning that I'm transgender, I have transgender experience, will help to get kind of more depth and more more clarity of of answers. I think certainly the way that I talk about gender to cis people and, and especially authority figures who are cis and the way I talk about my gender to trans people differs greatly. So I really hope that we can get a more in-depth discussion by, yeah, kind of lev leveling the playing field and making sure everyone has, you know, some degree of trans lived experience. Cool. If someone was listening to this and they were like, I want to participate in this cool research project. Can, are you like looking for people? Do you need? I am fully looking for people. I have done nothing besides planning so far. So yeah, if you, if you want to participate or if you, you know, just have advice about how I could tailor this research or, or tweaks I can make, you can email me at shelbymillerthesis at gmail.com. It's my first and last name, which I guess will be in the show notes and then yeah. thesis at gmail.com. Awesome. Yeah. Um, have you been... I know that this one article really inspired you <laughs> in a negative way, maybe. Spite of, like, a powerful motivator. Oh, there you go. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> what other resources or stuff have you been reading? What are... Do, are there findings in this area already or or... There are, but to my mind, they're kind of basic and they kind of take more of the form that I mentioned earlier of here's what some trans people said and that's do do with that what you will. So the most recent one was, I think, in 2015 or 2016. It was a Finnish study. So I'm going to butcher the names of the researchers. <laughs> uh, Pojanin and Kortelainen called Transgender Information Behavior. And it was kind of this very broad scope of the interview where you're talking about the early stuff, the identity stuff, but then you're also talking about how you move to navigate, you know, obtaining medical treatment, how you do research about uh, different procedures and different treatments, um, which certainly is its own, you know, area that I think is really interesting. There's a lot of conflicting and misinformation that you find online when you're doing that kind of research. But I also feel like those two should be split up because I think they are two very different approaches that require different 
research methods probably to fully explore. Mm-hmm. And just the scope of it seems a little too, yeah, a little too broad, potentially, for, for one study. How did you learn about, like, this kind of methodology, like, that action-oriented? Like, is, are there other models that kind of do that as well? It was It was something that I came to sort of organically and had named for me later, which was, you know, a very interesting um, and, and satisfying experience. I, it was born out of thinking about research in some of the ways I talked about earlier, feeling, you know, like it can be sort of exploitative, trying to, to disrupt that power dynamic. And and I talked to a professor and they're like, oh, well, it sounds like you want to do action research. So it takes a form a lot of times of taking the groups that would be the subjects and finding out about their experience, but then doing something with that experience, whether it's affecting policy, whether it's, you know, creating media, creating resources. And that seemed just like a much more fulfilling and a much more, um, a way to do research that I could really justify that really address some of the problems that I have with it. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad that you found a way to do it that feels good for you because I think it's a really important topic and doing it in that way I think is going to lead to really interesting yeah yeah I really hope so relationships and, and things uh will you come back and talk to us about it when you're done yes <laughs> for sure. that's really good because it makes me accountable to actually like <laughs> now that I've promised someone to talk about it I have to finish it <laughs> okay well don't uh, don't let us be like um you know, another weight on the pile of, of thesis angst, but uh, but out of excitement, we would we would like to hear about it. No, that's good, and, and knowing people are excited about it is definitely a motivating factor yeah. for me as well. So, do you have any final thoughts or anything? Any straggling thoughts that you want to share, or anything you want to talk about that we haven't yet? No, I feel like that was pretty comprehensive. So, you know, thank you both for having me. Yeah, thank, thank you for you. joining us. You you gave your thesis email, so I guess that's the best way for people to get in touch. Yeah, so, so it's shelbymillerthesis at gmail.com. Otherwise, I'm pretty agnostic to social media. I don't really have a lot of public accounts you can follow, but uh, yeah, shoot me an email and, and let me know if you're interested in the, in the project. Awesome. Great. Thanks so much. We can be found on Twitter at OrganizingPod. That's organizing with a Z and not an S. And our email is OrganizingIdeasPod at gmail.com and our website is organizingideaspod.wordpress.com. Bye!